Every day, 100 million Americans get up and they go to work and they go to make a better life for themselves and for their families. And no matter what Donald Trump's saying, Joe Biden's saying, the rest of the world is doing, when you have that many good people getting up and going to make a better life for themselves, that's what honestly gives me hope in this country. We got to do a better job. I just think of recognizing that and looking for the good and it's all around us. That's the voice of Chris Sankey, someone who I have found to have a sharp acumen, deep political knowledge, and a fair-minded approach to life. We've often been told not to talk about politics, but in this episode, that's exactly what Chris and I set out to do. I want to make very clear up front that the views we express here are entirely our own, and you'll probably find pieces that you disagree with. The purpose of this episode is not to persuade anyone towards left or right, but rather to give you, the listener, a chance to eavesdrop on a conversation where two people have an open dialogue to explore current political issues and attempt to identify some common ground upon which we could build greater unity in the future. I know I can speak for Chris when I say that we both have tremendous hope for a better future and that we find the source of that hope in principles and ideas that span both left and right. Most of all, we hope that our dialogue encourages and challenges you to become more informed and to get more involved in spreading your positive influence. Thanks in advance for taking the time to listen to this special episode with Chris Sankey. Welcome to Changing Lives, Selling Knives. I'm your host, Dan Cassetta. There's a generation of entrepreneurs and business leaders out there right now who are positively impacting the world using lessons and skills that they first learned from selling Cutco knives with Vector Marketing Corporation. This podcast was created to share inspiring stories from Cutco's most prominent alumni and current leaders. On this show, you'll meet successful entrepreneurs, best-selling authors, superstar business executives, and transformational leaders from many walks of life. All our guests will have two things in common. One, they're all changing lives today through their work and their influence. And two, they all started out selling Cutco knives when they were younger. The lessons of the Cutco Vector experience are numerous, are compelling, and are real-world concepts for business and life. Through hearing real-life stories and hands-on experiences, you'll gain insights that can help you in whatever it is that you do in life. Thanks for pressing play. Let's get on with today's episode. Welcome to the podcast, everyone. My guest today is Chris Sankey. And Chris was with Cutco from 2003 to 2010. He was the pilot office manager with the legendary Matt King in the Silver Cup office in 2005. Chris advanced as far as the position of district manager. He held that position for several years during which time he trained and developed some amazing individuals such as Mike Abramowitz, Ray Reed, Nicole Reed, and Rob Dial. Chris worked with Cutco until about 2010 before moving on to other ventures. He ultimately became a financial advisor in 2015. And now he manages the Tampa, Florida branch of Ameriprise, where he oversees over $2 billion in assets. Interestingly enough, Chris also completed an Ironman triathlon in 2014. He was admitted to the Genius Club Mensa in 2019. 
over the years, Chris and I have followed each other on social media. We have bantered back and forth about politics and other things. We don't necessarily always agree on everything, but I have found Chris to be a very sharp political mind. I have also found him to be very fair-minded and insightful. And I thought that uh, in this day and age of divisive politics, it would be pretty cool for us to record a conversation where we talk about some of these things. So we're going to talk about politics today. We're going to talk about Cutco and selling a little bit later on. This should be a thought-provoking conversation. Chris Sankey, thanks for joining me for this. Yeah, thank you, Dan. I'm uh, excited to be joining you. And I just want to make it clear, I didn't train or fully develop all those people. I had the privilege of working some of those people you mentioned. So I don't want Matt King to get on to me. <laughs> so, oh, well, yet you had some good influence uh, on them, I'm sure. So that's a pretty cool list. Yeah. All right. Well, listen, we're planning to release this episode on Inauguration Day. And it's likely to be a January 20th that is like no other in our lifetimes. How are you feeling about what's about to happen? Well, I'm, I'm excited. I, I always get excited for Inauguration Day. I can't tell you exactly the first time I sat down and watched it, but for the last probably five inauguration days, uh, I, you know, I sit down on the couch, you know, I'll, I'll turn it on at work and it's just an exciting moment for me. I mean, I just think as an American, you know, going back to watch uh, Barack Obama's inauguration, uh, watching Donald Trump's inauguration, it's, it's, I think it's just a special day for all Americans, or at least it should be. There's a ton of history that, you know, is behind that process and, and, uh, a lot of Americans are aware of it. Some may not be, but I think it's just one of the most special, you know, things that we do in this country. That you know, we've really led a lot of other countries uh, to a place where they've adapted that as well. And uh, it's just just an exciting time. It's it's always filled with hope uh, for for a lot of people. It's filled with some despair for some other people. And uh, but for me, I look at it as a celebration of of what we're about as a country. Yeah. And, and this peaceful transfer of power that is supposed to occur is one of the great traditions that makes our uh, American system so such a great example for others. I think yeah. you and I are both a little concerned about whether the transfer of power will happen as peacefully as it's supposed to. And, you know, what might occur on Wednesday, January 20th? You know, what are you what are you thinking? Well, I mean, hopefully we've seen the last of of any violence. I tend to think that it's going to go smoothly on Inauguration Day. I mean, I obviously could be wrong. I did not expect what happened on January 6th to to transpire, but it did. And we can talk about that for sure. But I think it should go okay. I mean, I, I think with, with President Trump coming out and saying, look, Joe Biden's going to be the next president of the United States, I think that put the definitive nail in the coffin that, you know, this is over and uh, it's time to move on. Whether he says it in a way that inspires, you know, people to, to follow that lead, I think it should go okay, but uh, just looking forward to seeing that process and uh, you know, and, and giving the next person uh, a shot. Yeah, why have you found this uh, this day to be so important? This process to be so important? Why should more people care and watch like you do? You know, <laughs> well, I mean, they don't have to watch you know the whole time. I mean, I can I can post up for eight hours. They do the same thing on election night. It's it's literally break out some wine, you know, order a pizza, and I watch election results until four in the morning or until my eyes can can stay open. It's important because if you think back, you know, hundreds, if not longer than that, for a political party or for a government to change hands, it either happened through a marriage, uh, a revolution internally, a civil war, or it happened because you were being 
overtaken by another country or a territory. And the United States is one of the first times in, in, in modern or in some cases ancient history where that didn't actually happen. And so I know Hamilton's become a really popular uh, show, which I absolutely love. And I encourage anyone who hasn't seen it yet to, to see it. But it hints a little bit at that, that transfer of power where essentially you know, Thomas Jefferson beat John Adams in the election of 1800. And they became bitter rivals. They at one point been great friends. They became bitter rivals through this presidency or this election. And John Adams literally packed up in the middle of the night and he went home to Quincy, Massachusetts and let Thomas Jefferson take over the White House at the time. And uh, there was no protest of, of results. He just he just left and he said, hey, you know, it's it's your turn now. And so he, he actually didn't attend the inauguration, which Trump, you know, people have talked about, well, Trump's not going to attend the inauguration. You know, that's crazy. And there's actually plenty of precedent for, for not attending it. But uh, I just think it says so much about who we are as a people uh, to say, hey, this person or this side or this party lost. And, and now, now we move on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So. What do you feel like uh, as we look at how this will go down? What are some of the, the changes that you think have come about because of the Trump presidency that, that might be positive for the future? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, if people who do follow me on social media see them, I, I tend to be very hard and tough on, on presidents. Uh, I expect a high level of accountability you know, from them and from what they do. So I think Trump has brought plenty of positives to, to politics. There's definitely been a list of negatives as well. Uh, I think Trump, his personality, his presidency, uh, some of the, the different, you know, whether you call them scandals or, or baseless investigations, wherever you, wherever you fall on that side of things, it brought a lot of people into the fray of, you know, I, I need to pay attention to this. Either this guy's doing something that I really don't like and I need to fight it, or this guy's doing something that I love and people are trying to take him down for it and I need to fight it. And so there's definitely been some of those lukewarm kind of presidencies where people are like, ah, you know, whatever. But I think Trump really ignited uh, a lot more interest, whether that be from a positive or a negative standpoint. Uh, I think he showed that you don't have to be one of the political elite to, to get into politics. And that's one of my huge passions is encouraging more people to get involved that, you know, aren't really into it now. I think we need a, a lot more people who are in sales, who are teachers, who are healthcare workers, who are, you know, financial advisors, whatever it is to be involved in politics versus, you know, the lawyers and the, uh, the people that were, you know, maybe born into it or their family was into it or they're a lobbyist or something like that. So I think Trump showed that that's possible. And you're actually seeing some people enter some of these races now on both sides, whether Republican or Democrat, who you know haven't been in there before. And so I think that's a very positive thing that he's brought about is just breaking open the wall of, hey, you don't have to necessarily talk like a politician. You don't have to know all of the things, uh, all of the policies, and you certainly don't have to uh, be involved in it to, to, to run for a high office. Yeah. Ultimately... One of the roles of any leader is to bring people together, right? It's creating uh, community, creating consensus, and it takes influence to be able to do that. And when you talked about, you know, more people getting involved in politics, right? Our audience here is an audience of salespeople and sales managers yep. and people who are good at creating rapport and asking questions and listening and connecting with people. And I do feel like if you know more of our audience became interested, became involved, 
that there's a lot of people listening who can move the needle on things and, you know, who have a, a, a greater ability to bring people together than, let's say, the stereotypical lawyer who maybe takes an argumentative approach or, you know, something that is, uh, you know, sure. more uh, combative, I guess you could say. So just this idea that Trump has created more interest in politics and brought more people into the fray, I do think that's positive. Yeah. It seems like the flip side of the coin is that as more people have come into the fray, many of them are coming in slugging, insulting, and just fighting it out in ways that are not very positive. It's clear we're at a state of greater polarization today than at any point in our history. And why has that happened? Yeah. Well, you know, on, on the Trump piece of people entering politics, I mean, I think some of those people that are coming out slugging right out of the gates, they're just trying to use the Trump playbook, which is be brash, be bold, don't care about anything that you say, uh, be willing to demean your opponents, be willing to insult, because they saw that that worked uh, at least once, right? And, you know, what I think you're going to see happen is you're going to see some of the people who are more politically inclined or experienced, like a Rand Paul or Bernie Sanders or Ted Cruz or some of these people who may still have presidential aspirations or still in the Senate uh, or even governors, they they were caught flat-footed by Trump on some of those debate stages. They had never experienced anything like that before. And what Trump was great at was you, you drew the parallel to, to sales. He is very good at sales. He's very good at handling objections. He's very good at deflecting. He's very good at you know taking a question and spinning it. And I don't want to say that that's what all sales is about. That's that's not it at all. But he understood psychologically what was happening in the in the minds of listeners and viewers. While some of those other people who had been in politics for a long time, who knew all the policies, they had no clue what was happening. Probably because they didn't have that sales experience like Trump has had for you know thirty, forty years in real estate and selling books and all types of stuff. So I think when you get a salesperson who enters politics, I mean, watch out because, you know, they're going to have a lot of skills to use in their arsenal. To your point about polarization, I mean, look, I don't try and hide to people that, you know, it wasn't all peaceful back in the late 1700s. I mean, there were bitter fights over over politics. I mean, Aaron Burr, I mean, these guys used to to, to go out and, and do gunfights to settle things. You know, I mean, that that would be unheard of now. Now it's it's Twitter fights and, and throwing throwing around, you know, uh, insults, but there's been polarization. But I think at the end of the day, we're starting to drift away from that element of truth where there was there was definitely polarization and bitterness, but it was all in search of what is best for the country. And I think we're losing that aspect of it, which is, you know, the human piece to it. And is, you know, I, I might, gosh, I might feel like I hate you. But at the end of the day, if you're if you're damn right for this country, I'm going to have to admit that. And that's, not the end result that we're getting to now. So, and I think there's a ton that goes into that, whether it be echo chambers, social media, you can easily hop on Google, type something in Google, and you can find a result that, you know, qualifies what your opinion is. And I've been guilty of that in the past. And so um, luckily I have good friends and, and people who I don't want to say follow me, but just that I'm associated with that will call me out on that and hold me accountable to that. And so I think we got to do a better job of that. But, but I know it was kind of a, a, a tangent there. I don't know if it fully answers the question, but... Yeah, you know, one of the things you said at the end is that, uh, you know, you've been guilty of making some mistakes along the way here. And let's just be clear that we all have every single person listening, and certainly I'll use myself front and center, 
we've all made mistakes along the way in terms of, uh, you know, how we viewed certain things or how we've interpreted certain things. And that that's a part of the process of evolution. I respect that you're willing to bring up things that you want to call out or things that you're seeing and then subject yourself to the, you know, feedback of the mob, so to speak. Um, And I think that that's important. And and I've, I've always been willing to do the same. And that's by and large what we're doing here today right? Is having this conversation and just being willing to put some ideas out there for people to hear and consider. And I think I can speak for you in saying that nothing that we say today, we feel like we're necessarily right about, you know, every single thing. So, you know, one of the things that I feel like has, uh, is certainly has contributed to the polarization is the uh, two party system that we have. What are your views on the two-party system and, and just how it's evolved over, over our lifetimes? Well, I want to clearly state that I hate the two-party system. I think it's the, the driving piece in American society right now that is pushing us further and further apart. And my ultimate goal uh, you know, politically is to essentially eliminate that structure, whether you know, I may see, see that before I die, I may not. Uh, but but I've, I've kind of already started on on going down that path. And when I say I want to eliminate the structure, I don't necessarily want to eliminate Republicans or Democrats at all. Uh, but I think when you have just two sides of the coin, that really only leaves for you know one option when it comes to to politics. And so you know this this goes back a, a really long time. I mean, you know, you'll see people online say, "Oh, well, the Republicans were the party that you know freed the slaves and." You know, that that's absolutely true. And and this Democrat Republican moniker has kind of changed hands throughout time over the, the last two hundred years. Uh, but it really all started with with uh with Jefferson and Adams. I mean, if you go back and you look and read the Federalist Papers or you look at some of the things they advocated for, Jefferson represented a very small government that was based on the states, that was based on more of an agrarian society. And uh the Federalists that followed Adams were more based on, you know, big business. Uh, a little bit more into to taxes and the financial aspect and in some of the urban areas. And you can see that that exact line has continued really for the last, you know, 200 or so years. We still have that, you know, kind of that, that idea going on. Is it, hey, is it a state-based government? Is it a federal government? Where, where does the state take over where the federal government doesn't play? It's just the names have kind of changed, uh, changed hands and changed sides a few different times. So, you know, to me, I look at it from the standpoint of, Obviously, there are good ideas Republicans have because they've been around for a long time. Uh, same thing with the Democrats. There are good ideas that they have. And, and to look at, you talk about polarization, when two candidates can get 70 million plus votes in a federal election for president, you know that there's something that's resonating there. I think what we're missing, though, is people are tying themselves to whatever you know that party has to say. So if I, let's just say, you didn't know about the parties. And I, I went to you, Dan, and I said, okay, I've got a list of 10 questions for you. And they're politically based, society based, you know, educationally based. I just want you to give me your, your exact answers on these. Where do you feel? You know? So when, you, when your taxes get collected, do you think the government should, should be careful with how they spend the money? Yes or no? Yes. Okay. Yep. You know, if we went through a list of questions that were just random and Americans answered them, you would find that they would probably get about 50-50 on where those answers would fall in those parties. Right. Right. Uh, maybe, maybe 70-30s and some, maybe 60-40, but it would be extremely rare to have someone answer 10 that would fall maybe on the conservative side and 10 on the liberal side. Right. But but, when you but, talk then, our people, pol- uh, but then our politicians have this ideological checklist 
that they just go down where it's 10 out of 10 on one side of the aisle. Yep. And, and there's, there's a, there's a time that goes into that too. And, and I hope we do a follow up conversation to this, but one thing I'll say is, you know, some of these politicians, they want to run on other, they want to run on other ideas, but they're afraid that they're going to get pushback from leadership in their own party. So I'm close with some actual, I don't want to say close with, like I'm, I'm great friends with them, but I am actual friends with some people who are house members in the U S house and have heard from them personally that they get pushback from the party elite on, Hey, this is the direction that we're going and you either fall in line or we primary you the next time. So, you know, there's obviously a ton that's wrong with that. Um, and then some of the politicians just, I, I think, uh, they're okay with, with toe in the line. I mean, I, I've got a congresswoman here in, in Florida and she's voted with the Democratic Party really like 98% of the time. And I just think to myself, that's not true representation. I mean, you can't tell me that you honestly believed 98% of the time that legislation put forth made sense. I, I just, I can't believe that that's, that's a reality. Right. Where did this go awry? <laughs> My theory is that and, and I, I've researched this. I, I haven't found an answer that clearly defines where this went awry. You know, the, the Democrats and Republicans have dominated politics really for the last 150 years. I mean, since since the Civil War Reconstruction era. And there, there have been a couple that, that got thrown in there that, that tried to make a stand, a couple smaller parties. But they've really dominated the last 150 years. And where I think part of this has gone awry is uh, back in the 70s, there was a... It, it, you used to... If you're a congressperson, you used to be able to vote and no one could see what your vote is. And now that might sound like, well, why would I want that? I, I want to know how my congressperson votes. Well, when they changed this law in the 70s, the votes became public in, in the House and the Senate. And I think one thing that happened there was lobbyists could actually now see and companies could now see where true allegiances lay with those people. So if you come to me and say, hey, Chris, I'm going to give you you know, $5,000 to donate to your campaign because I want you to do X, Y, and Z. I can say, yeah, Dan, yeah, that sounds great. I'll definitely do that. When that vote comes up, I'm right there with you, man. And then I can go to my chamber and I can vote how I vote and, and you would never know the same. You know, oh, hey, sorry, the bill, bill didn't pass by two votes. You know, I don't know who didn't vote for it. I tried, right? So I, I think that has something to do with it. Social media has definitely, not just social media, but outlets that aren't dedicated to the truth. So, you know, we used to have the, you know, the Walter Cronkites and the people that just reported the news. And then I think people found out, well, hey, we can make money just telling people what they want to hear versus reporting the news. Like, why Like, why am I going to compete with CBS and these other networks when we're all just doing the same thing? Like, why don't we create a, a segment where we just start telling our viewers kind of, kind of what they want to hear? And so I think that's led to it. But ultimately, to me, we have fallen into a, you know, a hubris where there's this idea that it can't be broken. And that's really what I try and stress to people is if you sit there and say to yourself that the only reason you voted for Biden or the only reason you voted for Trump or the reason you didn't vote was because you don't think it can be broken, you have to take responsibility for where we're at. Mm -hmm. And my belief is we can break it. And, and all it's going to take is for a couple people around this country to run a campaign as a pure independent, uh, for a couple people to run from a different party. And I would just prefer no party. I mean, I prefer the George Washington belief, which is, you know, that parties will destroy the, the country. And he, he said that in his farewell address when he left the White House. But 
it can happen and we can break the system. You can break the mold, but it's going to take courage. It's going to take people to step up and say, you know what? I'm tired of seeing what I've seen and I'm not going to act the same way. And I'm not going to, I'm not going to reward the same actions with my vote anymore. So I, I sympathize with people who, who don't vote. I really do. I mean, people say this thing about, well, if you don't vote, you can't complain about it. Well, you know, I, I, I guess maybe, but I, I would say we, we need to run better candidates and, and that's going to take, you know, myself, it's going to take, you know, you, it's going to take people listening to this podcast that are going to decide, Hey, I, I care about this country and I'm just not going to let it see. I'm not, I'm not going to let it go. These, these one of two ways. Yeah. So you've described that the, you know, there's this problem with the two party system. An ultimate answer would be no parties. I'm not exactly sure how feasible that is in, in anywhere in our lifetimes, but to introduce another voice into the equation, is that what you see as being a, a step that we can take in yeah. the right direction? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if you get two people in a room and you start having a conversation and one person decides in their head, well, you know, I, I just don't agree with that. They can check out, they can end the conversation. Having that third voice just facilitates more. It facilitates more debate and it also facilitates accountability. So what you would see if you had a third voice in politics, whether it's a libertarian voice, a Green Party voice, a constitutional party, or let's call it a no party voice, just a pure ed- independent voice. You would have the Republicans, or excuse me, the Republicans over here, Democrats over here. You have some stuff in the middle. And then when, when legislation is proposed, these independents would become so important for Republicans to work with and for Democrats to work with if they wanted to get what they wanted to get passed. And, and you see this in other governments around the world. I and mean, if you look at United Kingdom, you look at Greece, you look at uh, some countries in Asia, and some of these countries have 10, 15, 20 parties that are involved in, in that kind of presents a whole new set of issues. But I at least think you have to start going down that path to hold some people's feet to the fire on what you're trying to accomplish here versus, oh, Barack Obama had a supermajority in his first first term. He had the House, the Senate, and the White House, and they passed the Affordable Care Act. That was the marquee legislation that Barack Obama's legacy will probably be remembered by is that piece of legislation. Trump got the the tax legislation passed through. So, you know, do we want to sit around and wait till we have super majorities for stuff to get done? Or is there a, a more efficient way to facilitate that? And, and I think the third voice is incredibly important. I think a lot of Americans want it. They just don't know how to get it. Yeah. It just seems like it makes so much sense that it, if there's this large segment in the middle that the uh, extreme sides have to win over that it will pull the both of the sides more towards that middle and it will provide yeah. more consensus more common ground in our society. Yeah. I know that uh, you're particularly drawn to libertarianism. What is it that has drawn you to the philosophies of libertarianism? Yeah, so this is kind of a, an inside joke within libertarians, but there's there's the libertarian party which is an actual political party and then there's libertarianism which is a political philosophy. Uh, I'm not part of the Libertarian Party. They do some things well, uh, but for for reasons probably not to go into. Uh, but but I tend to believe a lot of the Libertarian philosophy. What actually brought me to this is my cousin, uh, who's very into politics. Um, we were having a conversation one day over some beers, and he said, "Hey, I, I gotta I gotta show you this guy, you know, on YouTube." And I said, "No, nah, you know, I'm, I'm I'm good." And we went home, and he sat me down, and he, he put this YouTube video of Ron Paul on, and. I'm listening to these speeches and I think to myself, like, wow, you know, I really agree with that. You know, that, that 
I haven't heard that from somebody before. And it really sparked kind of some of these inner things that I felt I knew I believed, just no one had ever really said them before. And, you know, he talked about free association. He talked about uh, non aggression. He talked about the idea that your ideas really aren't worth anything if you have to enforce them, right? Like if, if you if you go to your people and you know this as as with your tenure at Cutco, if you go to your people and say you have to do this, there's not going to be that buy-in. And the only reason people do things is because you know they look at the idea and go, wow, I believe in that or I want to follow that person. And so, you know, libertarianism talks really about the non-aggression principle. It's called the the NAP or the NAP, and it, it essentially means you know don't hurt me and take my stuff, and I won't do the same to you. And so when you think about that in your life, I mean, that's probably how you treat your neighbors and you want your neighbors to treat you is don't break into my house, don't hurt me. And, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to respect the same way to you. And, and hopefully we become friends and like we defend each other's, you know, positions or property. And that really resonated with me is, is, is just that peaceful uh, idea about, you know, exchange of ideas and, 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 and that can apply in the economy. It can apply in the workplace. It can apply in, in politics. And so, Libertarianism also, to me, it was the blend of both sides a little bit because Cato Institute, which is a libertarian-leaning think tank, they did a survey, and I can't remember how many people they actually polled for this, but essentially they found that around 70% of Americans, slightly less, identify as socially accepting and fiscally conservative. So if you were to say, which party is more socially accepting, what would you say? Democrats. Democrats, right? And, and, and if I said fiscally conservative, what comes to mind? Republicans, right? So if you have sixty percent of Americans going, well, you know, hey, I, I believe in gay marriage. I think that you know that that doesn't bother me. I believe that people should be able to go to the doctor that they want to go to. I also believe that when I send twenty percent of my paycheck to the federal government, it should be spent responsibly, and I don't want it to go to foreign countries that are going to attack the United States or or fund terrorism or behead their citizens for speaking out against the government like the Saudis and the Iranians do. So, you know, and we just saw that pop up in this last stimulus debate where you found out that 190 billion is going to, uh, you know, Americans and another 600 something billion is going to all these other places, not all foreign countries, but, and I'm not saying we shouldn't help around the world. That's, that's not what I'm getting to, but libertarianism was the blend of that for me, which said, you know, this makes a lot more sense. The problem is, and when I talk to people about this, just whether they know about politics or they don't, they go, wow, that's, that's really exciting, but they can't win. It always comes back to them. That's where the conversation always goes, goes to. You know, I've made it kind of just a personal mission to try and convince as many people that they can win, and, uh, and you should believe in that. You should fight for that. Yeah, because there are common grounds, anyone who is a part of the middle, I guess you could say, uh, has the opportunity to reach into both of the other parties. And particularly right now, I think there's a massive amount of disenchantment. I think there are a ton of people on both sides of the political aisle that are totally disenchanted with where they are, I, uh, yeah. with where our, poli- uh, our, our parties are. I, I saw an interesting insight not too long ago about how a lot of people view politics. And it, it, the insight was that most people are not informed enough to really know who they are politically and which party they should identify with politically. But what people do use as a litmus test for, you know, which party they want to support is which one they're not. So they'll, <laughs> they'll see these actions of one party or the other, and they'll say, well, yeah. I, I can't, like, I, that's ridiculous. Like, I can't 
that's not me. I can't be a part of that. And that sort of pushes them in the other direction. So I just feel like there's this great opportunity to be part of what one of my friends calls the radical middle and to be able to create, you know, many more common grounds. There's something else that sparked up. A lot of people, when they talk about, well, I, I don't think they can win. The part of the problem is Republicans and Democrats know that there is a threat here. They know that Americans think this way. They, the Democrats absolutely 100% know when they get in their internal meetings that, you know, gosh, if we went poll tested and, and looked at, you know, some different things that people felt, they probably only agree with about half of what we're saying. And same with the Republicans. So they actually challenge libertarians. They challenge some of the smaller parties. Green Party, Jill Stein has been running under the Green Party for years. And she always gets challenged in court. And if you can reach a certain threshold in federal elections, you then receive more funding for that. You get access to the ballot and you get access to the debate stages as well. So a huge issue I have is the Commission on Presidential Debates, which is essentially a 501c3 that is funded by ex-elite Republicans and Democrats get to decide who you see during the national presidential election. And the last time they featured a third party was Ross Perot, and he almost won the election. I mean, it, had he not dropped out uh, it, for seven weeks and then decided to get back in, I mean, he he would have he he threw a wrench in the entire in the entire process. Since he got on the stage, they have not let a third party back. Right. So I want to say that there's an active and a malicious effort for the big parties that are, are are actively campaigning against some of the small parties, and whether that be a libertarian or just strictly an independent. So I want to throw that out there. What are some of the the tenets? of libertarianism or of you know any sort of independent middle of the road political views that you feel like could be common grounds between left and right tenets of libertarianism i mean i I talked about the non-aggression principle that is really i would say the the backbone of of libertarianism the free market is is another backbone of libertarianism i would encourage anyone to if they're kind of interested in, in this they should read the book called the road to serfdom uh, it's by Friedrich Hayek, and um, he was a you know a libertarian philosopher. And, and a lot of people, when they hear free market, they think they think, oh my gosh, corporations are just going to cut my pay, and they're going to make me work 100 hours, and we're going to roll back all these protections that we have. And that's not really what the free market means. That's kind of how it's been taken over, and that term has been twisted over a long time. But really, the free market was about equal access to the markets. It was it was free from government corruption, really. It was free from corporatism. It was free from bailouts for certain companies, but not bailouts for these companies because they're not as important. It was free from influence from legislators who could get kickbacks or political donations. That's really what, what, what Adam Smith and Hayek talk about when they talk about the free market. So I started calling it the fair market. I, I think that's what most Americans want is a fair market, not necessarily a free market, they want to know if they're going to go into business, that they can know what to expect. They know what type of risk they're taking on. So libertarianism is, is all about that, giving people equal opportunities to, to, to access that. And when I say equal opportunities, it kind of sounds like you'd be talking to Bernie Sanders, right? When he's always talking about equal opportunities, but libertarianism is truly about creating that pathway forward for you and I, no matter where we come from, to have the same access to, to, to some of those avenues and, and results. That's a great great rebrand where you said the fair market you know words are really important and if the words free market have developed a connotation that a lot of people don't buy into or feel like they're fearful of fair market is something that i think people can hear and intuitively think okay well what is that let's develop that thought a little bit more yeah that could be that could definitely be a common ground 
Yeah. Um, what else are some common grounds between left and right? Well, you know, the libertarianism certainly is based off of the Constitution. I mean, the founding document of, of this country. And uh, it takes a very, I would say, disciplined mind to be a libertarian because sometimes there are things that happen that, that make you go, I don't like that. But it, it forces you to stick to the principles. And I just encountered this the other day. Well, one of my good friends, David, who actually sold Cutco in Jacksonville in Jake Bailey's office, uh, I think this summer he broke the PR record. Uh, so David is, is a lawyer for, for the United States government, brilliant guy. And he's the guy I kind of bounce ideas off of when I'm a little bit conflicted on where I'm at. And this just came up with the social media companies. You see that, that Twitter banned, banned Trump, right? And a lot of conservatives are, are, are rightfully very upset because I agree. I think it's pretty hypocritical for, for the companies to do this. There are plenty of, of voices on the left or other violent voices that they are allowing to say on the platform, but they're choosing to, to ban certain conservative voices. The Constitution will tell you that they are allowed to do that. There is not a free speech protection for you or me using Zoom, using Facebook, using whatever we're using there's not a protection in place for that. So the Constitution gives you times where it makes you go, gosh, I, you know, that's not convenient. Well, you know, that's why it was written the way that it was written. And I'm not saying I, I don't think it can be amended or I don't think that some of the amendments have actually been great additions like the right for women to vote and the end to slavery and things like that and alcohol prohibition. <laughs> so, so libertarianism really embraces that thought of, hey, it's not going to be convenient at certain times, but we have to we have to look at at both sides of it and and, and really follow that. And so, you know, I, I think there's overlap. I I think that uh, if people really dove in, they would see that a lot of the civil rights pieces, like Rand Paul, is a big proponent of criminal justice reform. And if you talk, if I went and pulled ten really hardcore liberals and I said, "Hey, what do you think about Rand Paul?" They'd all say bad things about him. And Rand Paul, you know, he doesn't. Call Call himself a libertarian. He says he's like libertarian light or he's a Republican libertarian. I don't know. I think he's kind of scared to embrace the term as a whole or he doesn't want to get put in, into a box. But Rand Paul was the biggest advocate for Khalif Browder. And Khalif Browder was, uh, when he was 16 years old, he was accused of stealing a backpack and he was sent to Rikers prison. His bail was $3,000. His family could not afford to, to pay the bail. He spent two of the three years in solitary confinement and eventually committed suicide in the prison. And I, I get emotional when I talk about this because that is probably one of the most un-American things we can do is hold someone in a prison without a trial. And Rand Paul was his biggest, his biggest advocate. I mean, he pressed for this, for this guy to be released, have a trial. After his death, he, he wrote an op-ed in The Atlantic talking about the steps that they went through and the reforms that need to happen. So libertarianism is huge on criminal justice reform, uh, which the left would really, really, you know, latch onto and go, gosh, you know, those, those are some great ideas. And we really need to follow that. And Rand really championed that. You know, the right would look at our, our adherence to the Constitution and say, gosh, yeah, man, you guys are far more constitutional than the Republicans we have. So there's definitely some, some crossover there. It's just breaking people out of the mold of you know, I'm going to get online today and I'm going to go, I'm going to go fight the Trump supporters. and I'm going to go own the libs. I mean, that's really what's holding us back. I think Dan in this country is just that, you know, whether it's hate or refusal to be wrong or refusing to, you know, admit that something else could be right. We got to work on that. Yeah. 
lot of great insights that you shared right there, uh, Chris. I feel like this is just a big vent session for me. <laughs> <laughs> no, this is uh, this has really been interesting and positive. I, I think that certainly one of the tenets I recognize of uh, libertarianism is the idea of individual choice, yeah. and I think I think that most people uh, want to have some sense of self determination in their life. They want to know that they are have the, the capacity to uh, develop themselves, to develop their knowledge and their skills, to make choices that are going to lead them in a certain direction, and to have the opportunity that comes with those choices. And that just that feeling of self-determination, yeah. you know, and, uh, you know, being able to control one's destiny, is, it, that really is classic liberalism. So I, 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 I view that as one of the one of the common grounds. I think you know anybody, right or left, would feel like, yeah, I want to, I want to have that feeling for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and I mean, you mentioned classic liberalism. That's that's really what libertarians are. We're classic liberals now. You really have to start diving into some of the terms there. But but liberal now in the in the in the current sense, the contemporary sense is is the left, you know, more kind of democratic side. But the classic liberals were, you know, really the libertarians that believed in that individual choice and, and free association and, and the fair market principle we talked about, free from government interference. And um, I think what holds a lot of people back is is the moniker that libertarianism gets, which is, oh, those are the guys that just want to, you know, shoot guns and smoke weed. And that's really, you know, I think the two parties have have played into that because they want their they want their base to think like, oh, those are just crazy, you know, people. If you sit down and talk to a libertarian who's well versed on on theory and philosophy, I mean, you're going to hear some stuff that you're going to go like, "Wow, you know, that's never been brought up during a Democratic debate or a Republican debate." And so, a lot of people think that you know we want to roll back all these regulations and we don't care about the environment. That's so not true. I mean, if anything, it's actually you know we 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 promote some of that stuff where it's 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 hey, but the regulations got to be fair across the board not handpicked for, for certain industries, which I think Democrats and Republicans are, are guilty of. Yeah. Chris, well, why do you think it's so important for anybody, whether they consider themselves to be left, right, center? Why is it important for anybody to make a deliberate effort to see and understand alternative perspectives? Well, I mean, that's what I think life is about. <laughs> if you're going to go through and in, in, in any aspect of your life, whether it be your work or your family, uh, or your relationships, and, and that's the attitude you're going to have. I mean, you're, you're not, to me, really adding any value. And uh, we, I know we get caught up in the news and we get caught up in, you know, the negativity, but we have something special in America. And I am not one of these people that goes around and parades that we're the greatest country in the world. I've been to a lot of countries. My mom lives part time in Italy, part time in Germany. I've been to Brazil. I've been to you know a lot of places, and a lot of them have really great things. and And they would probably say they're the best country in the world. But we have something truly special, and we really do have to work to preserve that. So the founders talked about, you know, hey, can you keep the republic intact? And you know, sometimes we got to take a step back and realize that you know we're only here for for so long. And you know, I want my kids, my grandkids, their kids to be able to live in this this same special place. And we got a lot of a lot of shit that's wrong with this country, and that's okay. I, I I want people to know that that's okay. I typically get 
ripped a bunch when I, I speak out against certain things that I think are injustices. A lot of times for Republicans say, this is the best country in the world. If you, you don't like it, go somewhere else. No, I, I don't want to go somewhere else. I want to stay here and fix it because I love this place, right? And, and the last thing you do if you love something is you're, you run away from it and you decide, well, you know, it's, it's, it's just too difficult, right? So uh, I think we got to dig in and not dig in in the sense of creating the division more, but dig in and, and really say, hey, why am I believing this? Why am I researching this? And, and why does it make sense? Yeah. I also have oftentimes asked people, are there any beliefs you have in your life right now that are different than what you thought 10 years ago? And, and of course, almost everyone will say, well, yes, right? Yeah. And well, the next point after that is, well, do you think there will be anything different in the way that you believe 10 years from now? And I think that any sort of logical person who is into self-development and growth and evolution is going to say yes. The process of evolution of thought is how we learned that the world was not flat. And so yeah. we don't want to be somebody that gets stuck in a certain way of thinking. And the more that we surround ourselves with everybody who thinks the same way, talks the same way, acts the same way, the more that we are putting ourselves into a box of rigid and fixed thinking that is not going to evolve. So that's one of the reasons why I feel like these sorts of dialogues and uh, you know the kinds of uh, interactions that uh, that I know you've had with others are so important because it does help us to evolve our our thinking. Yeah, yeah, no, you're absolutely right, and, and uh, you know I don't know where, where where that fear comes from of people not wanting to maybe surround themselves or feeling far more comfortable surrounding themselves with with people that either think the same things or, or at least voice the same things. I mean, I, I try not to. The only time I'll ever kick anyone off my page or anything like that is if you are hurling insults and you're not respecting the conversation. I a lot of times like to set the groundwork on, hey, if you're going to come talk about this, make sure that you you bring some sources to your piece. You're going to keep it civil, and you know. And then a lot of times, if they don't, you know, I just I just get rid of those those uh, those people on there. But yeah, you got to surround yourself with people who are I think going to push you, uh, question what you say. And I've had great conversations with. You know, everyone has people that we're close with in life, and I have people that I'm close politically with, and those are the people that I know that will hold me accountable, or I can sit down and have a conversation with, like you, uh, my best friend Ray. And it's it's not to convince him, or it's not to convince you, or you're trying to convince me. It's just, you know, are you are you searching for the truth? And I can't say that I'm perfect; that I've never been caught up in the wanting to be right. I do want to be right, absolutely. But at the end of the day, me being right is not more important than the United States. It's not more important than the next 10 years. And, uh, you know, you just got to check that at the doorstep sometimes or all the time. Yeah, you posed a great question right there, which is, are you searching for the truth? I have a maxim that is, you know, what's right is more important than who's right. And constantly being focused on getting to what is right, I think is one of the things that helps people evolve, not holding on to what you think because you want to be right, but, you know, searching yeah. for truth. There's also a, a principle about dealing with people that plays in here that uh, you said something, you know, like, you know, why are people just more comfortable around people who are like them? That's reality. I mean, you go all the way back to Dale Carnegie and how to win friends and influence people. And he, he taught that people like others who are like them. Yeah. And that's why if you go to any large gathering, you'll see people of a similar ethnic group oftentimes yeah. will gravitate to each other or, you know, uh, in, in any college, oftentimes people hang out with a lot of friends who grew up in the same way that they grew up and are similar yeah. to them. And that happens naturally in life. And I think that it's okay 
for that to happen naturally in life. But at the same time, it's important for us to, as we encounter people who are not like us, and we are bantering and interacting with them, we have to create comfortable interactions. Otherwise, we push ourselves farther apart. So learning how to interact with people who are not like you in a way that is comfortable is very, very important. I actually heard a, a speaker just the other day who said, diversity will guarantee that there are misunderstandings. Yeah. Right? If you work in a company where there's a very diverse workforce, like certainly Cutco Vector has, you know, uh, by and large, yeah. and you talk to other people, there are going to be misunderstandings because different people with different backgrounds and different ways of thinking aren't always going to connect at the at, at first uh, opportunity. Um, but to be able to work through those things in a way that's civil and to have you know the kinds of conversations where you're respectful and you really are interested yeah. in someone else's opinion, someone else's point of view, all of that stuff sort of plays in here to the process of you know gaining alternative perspectives. Yeah, it does, and and I think I think social media is helping in some areas. I think it's definitely hurting in the in a specific area that you just mentioned, which is you know kind of when you force yourself into some some type of interaction you put yourself in a place where you know you almost have to make it work and i think back to you know the 50s and the civil rights movement and after they essentially said hey no more separate but equal it forced a lot of businesses uh, to embrace things and it forced a lot of customers really to embrace things that they were uncomfortable with like if you're african american would you really feel uncomfortable walking in there now that you could probably not if you were the business owner and you're racist POS, were you feeling comfortable now that African Americans can can sit down and eat next to the white people? Probably not. But I bet you what happened with that was a lot of uncomfortability, but a lot of opinions probably changed. Where that that maybe maybe plenty of those business owners stayed racist, right? But I bet you there was there was a good handful that said, you know what? Maybe if they never admitted it, but I was wrong. And and they they softened over time, and I think that that probably happened on the opposite side too, where you know these you know African Americans were oppressed for so long, and and probably held rightfully held a lot of resentment towards you know people that just looked white, even though they'd never met them. And I've had conversations with 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 friends about this, and and just really raw stuff comes out about you know what it's like, whether you went to public school or you worked at Vector or you lived back in the day when all that was happening. So. I think that's a great point that you make. And unfortunately, social media, I think, is kind of lowering that barrier where if, if you and I were face-to-face and we disagreed, you and I probably wouldn't dare to really say some of the things that I've seen said on on Facebook. You know, it, it, it emboldens. It's kind of like, you know, if you're on Facebook and you're arguing politically, it's you're you've had a couple of drinks or you're feeling good and, and you're willing to say whatever, where you know, you wouldn't say that if you were necessarily face to face. So, you know, I yeah. I think that element there is kind of hurting us. Yeah, so social media helps in ways that it, it creates access to a much wider range of people for sure. I can find people who have any sort of beliefs if I want to by surfing through my social media. But there's a lot of ways that it has hurt and that communication can be so rude and insulting. I saw a thread recently on a very respected friend of mine's page where two people were just, it was a competition to see who could lob the most intelligent insult at the other one. Yeah. And I literally feel like there's no, like there's a 0% chance that anybody is going to be moved off their position when you insult them. 
And yeah. that oftentimes is what happens with social media. And as a result, people dig in their heels even more versus yeah. being moved. And I feel like, there, you know, hopefully there's people like you and I out there who are willing to engage in conversations that don't devolve into insults and that we're setting examples for others of how to have a civil discourse and how to be able yeah. to, you know, trade beliefs and thoughts without uh, disrespecting the people who have differing beliefs from us. It's funny you say that because I am in sales. I'm still in sales now. You know, I've, I've, I've called thousands of prospects over the time, whether they be, you know, Mrs. Jones to sell a homemaker set or, or someone to invest, you know, a lot of money or, or a little bit of money. It doesn't matter. And I found that when salespeople call me and I'm not interested, I am empowered when I tell them, Dan, I thank you for calling me. I'm not interested. Take me off your list. I want to wish you the best of luck. You've got a good approach and uh, good luck on your next call. And, and it, it empowers me to say no. And I'm going to relate that to something here. But so many people, they, they kick it off. Oh, well, call me back. Or, hey, I'm, I'm too busy. Or they throw out you know the smokescreen objection. And I feel the same way when I've gone online on, on social media and someone has followed a post of mine and go, Chris, two weeks later, they'll come back and post something and say, hey, you said this and you were wrong. And I'm empowered when I go on there and go, you know what? You're right. I was. And... I got that. I got that wrong. I mess up. I apologize, and I'm going to do more research next time. And I think if people just did that, that once, they go, "Oh, that wasn't so bad," you know. And so I think we also in politics can give people an out. I mean, I, I posted something the other day, which is instead of digging your heels in more about Trump, just come out and say, "Hey, look, I like the things that he did. I don't like this, and you know, I, I still believe in America. I still believe in, in all of us." And, and I think we got to do a better job of saying. Instead of saying, ha ha, you were wrong. I told you so. We got to say, hey, at the end of the day, you're an American. And I've, I've been there too, man. You know? Yeah, uh, that, that's a great point. You know, there's going to be people listening to this who support Trump and his presidency. There's going to be people listening to this who absolutely revile him. Uh, wh- what do you think history is going to remember about Donald Trump? Yeah, well, it, it, on, both really sides, on-, <laughs> on both sides of the ledger. Well, not the theory, but the saying goes that uh, whoever writes history is is how they'll be remembered. But you know, <laughs> I, I think Trump will be remembered for, and I hope they they paint a fair picture. I mean, you know, I don't know what it's going to be like to go to elementary school in twenty years from now. I mean, who knows? But uh, you know, I I hope that we continue to paint a fair picture uh, of what people have done. I mean, I, I've been very hard on Barack Obama for some of the drone strikes and things like that, that no one really wanted to talk about that he did that I really disagreed with. So I I think Trump will be looked at really as a major figure in American history. And there will definitely be several asterisks to that presidency. And and I'd say that's probably how I look at it, is it's going to be a presidency that some people are going to look at as somewhat illegitimately, uh, that that will always have there. And to, to others... Uh, he will be remembered as a hero. He'll be remembered as as someone who broke the mold in, in American politics, not in the way that I want to break the mold uh, or I want someone else to break the mold or a, l- a large group of people. But I think he'll be remembered for you know being pro-business, for uh, a massive run in the stock market. And I think at the end of the day, people will just say, look, you know, he, he couldn't come to terms with, with being wrong. I think you mentioned something to me that you, you've never heard him apologize. And, and I, I never thought of that. I've also never heard him apologize. So I don't think it's going to be a strong one way or the other. I think there's going to be some positives and some negatives, but uh, there's going to be that asterisk there. And I think this last incident last week or whatever it was, uh, you know, eight, nine, 10 days ago, 
that's not going to go down well. I mean, that's not the last chapter that he wants. It's really an, an unfortunate uh, sort of ignominious end to the four-year run here. Yeah. But I, I would echo what you say in that I, I hope that uh, history records both sides of the coin here. You referenced the stock market. You know, the stock market went from 19000 to 30000 And you may or may not give the president credit for that happening, but that it did happen here in this presidency. So that's just a, yep. a, a fact. I read something about a year ago that said, when asked, are you better off now than before Trump took office? The percentage of people who answered, yes, they're better off now in America was 76%. And that was before coronavirus, but, you know, which obviously threw a wrench into everything. But that was sort of the way I think people viewed their own personal state of affairs um, one year ago. And again, you may or may not give Trump the credit for that. Some people will say it's, re- it's the, the residual effect of Obama's presidency and policies, and that may or may not be true. Yeah. But that's, that's another reality. I think the pressure that Donald Trump has placed on China is very important. I think that China represents a major threat to our future in a lot of ways. I think that the, some recent developments in Middle East relations have been really, really positive. Yeah. A number of uh, you know Arab countries have recognized Israel now and begun to normalize relations with them, and um, yeah. that's a step in the right direction towards peace and what is because you know what has been one of the most violent and dangerous places, uh, you know regions at least in the world. And then you know what you said about the interest that's been sparked and how Trump broke the mold on politics, and that's a big piece that I think has brought a lot of people into the fold who have interest and. Who can now get involved and can you know use their voice, and uh, and can hopefully uh, help us find these common grounds that'll that'll matter. So I look at those things on the good side, Chris. I on the other side of the coin, I, I've often used the word buffoonery to describe you know sort of the clown show that has been yeah. emanating out of Washington over the last four years. I feel like Trump has an incredible lack of self awareness. You said something earlier that you think he's good at sales. I think he's good at promotion. Yeah. But sales is about influencing and it's about having what you say accepted and, uh, you know, having people quote buy. Yeah. You said earlier something like the Trump playbook worked. I guess it worked in that he was elected, but it hasn't worked because over the last four years because he was not reelected and he had so many yeah. opportunities to reach to the people who were against him. And to offer an olive branch or to, yeah. uh, you know, come up with ways of communicating and interacting that could have a chance of bringing people together. And when I brought this up with some of my friends who are, you know, on, on the right, they'll say, well, look at what the media has done to him and look at what the Democratic Party has done to him over these last few years, this, you know, calling him a Russian spy, which was a ridiculous accusation, you know, that most of us realized when it first came out. And these other things that have happened that have been really, really unfair. I think we can all say that these were, many of these things were unfair and the way Trump was treated was unfair, but you know what? He's the leader of the United States and you have to deal with that. That, that comes with the territory 
of being the president. And it's not unlike many of the ways that Obama was treated, maybe not like by the media, but it's not unlike many of the ways that Obama was treated by the people who did not support him. And it's probably not unlike how Biden is going to be treated by the people who do not support him. And you have to take that. You have to have a thicker skin to be able to take that stuff. And Trump has been so thin-skinned and abrasive that it just he's lost so many opportunities to create consensus and bring people together. And I feel like with that 76% quote I referenced to you earlier, he had every opportunity to be reelected. And this piece of sort of learning to bring people together is the one thing that I, I haven't seen from him that I, you know, is unfortunate uh, for the leader of our country. Yeah. I mean, you just said a lot of great things there that, uh, that I agree with, you know, and, and I think the conservatives do have a point that when they say, well, you know, if he was to do that, look what they've already tried to do to him. Why, you know, why would they respond any different? And, and I agree with that in the sense, but only in the sense of the, the extreme left probably would still not accept it. They'd say, well, it's still not enough for us. Even though you offered us the olive branch, we're not going to take it because we're not about that. Where he would have actually resonated with people is that movable middle that you talked about a little bit earlier, where they would go, you know what? I don't like everything I've seen. May disagree with that policy, but that was the right way to handle it. And, and I mean, you're somebody who, you know, you don't make excuses for leadership. I mean, it's, it's, it's a way of life. Uh, for some people, I think they flirt with leadership a little bit. And obviously Trump, I think has made it pretty aware that he's not interested in true leadership, you know, true servant leadership. He, he's he's interested in himself and in his group and maybe some buddies and, and maybe the right, you know, maybe he's not interested in that. I, I, you know, it's tough to say exactly what he's thinking, but I think you're right. He had plenty of opportunities. You know, I, Joe Biden, to me, I wish him, I want him to be successful. To me, he's a very uninspiring candidate. And so I think when people say, how is it possible that Joe Biden got more votes than Donald Trump, I say, well, it's not because of Joe Biden. It's because of Donald Trump. You know, it's it's not that people wake up and go, God, Joe Biden's about to be president. I'm I'm so excited for Joe Biden. They're like, I'm so excited that Trump is leaving. And so, you know, I agree with you. I think I think he should have won re-election. I think he had plenty of opportunities too. I think he squandered those opportunities. And he needed to realize that it was not about it was not about acquiescing to the left. And the, the right paints this picture of you have to fight tooth and nail with, with, with Bible and sword and never give an inch. And sometimes you have to realize like art of war type, type scenarios that you say some things sometimes to know that it's going to move in a different segment. That, those people are still going to hate you, but that's how you win. And I think he just let, the, let his emotions get the best of him. And he probably had too many people around him who, who weren't willing to hold him accountable. I mean... If I was his advisor, I would have brought him down wherever that little room is where they play pool and drink scotch and say, look, man, let me sit you down and I'm going to say some stuff for the next hour and you might fire me, but here's how it is. I think the sad sad part is he's so defensive that he would have fired that person. And so Probably. probably those people were afraid to tell it like it is. And it just speaks to a lesson all of us can learn. What, whatever role you're in, whatever leadership position you're in, being open to feedback, viewing feedback as a gift, viewing yeah. feedback as an opportunity for greater self-knowledge. This yeah. is all stuff that uh, that I think everybody can take in. And if you've been listening to this uh, you know, conversation here today and you've disagreed with some of the stuff we've said, I hope that you could take it in and just think about it and ponder it and use it as a, another opportunity for greater perspective, because I don't anticipate that everybody listening is going to have agreed with every single thing that we've talked about here today so far, Chris. So, um, but 
but this has certainly been great. I really uh, respect uh, your thoughts and I appreciate uh, what you've shared on this political topic. Yeah. Thank you, man. It's been, it's been awesome to have a conversation, not on Facebook and for it to, uh, for it to go well. So uh, I love doing this. Yeah. Well, we talked about a lot of important stuff for sure. I want to give our audience a chance to hear your Cutco story, man. So take us back to 2003 and how you got started. (laughs) Well, I I won't give you my whole training speech. That's about an hour, but, uh, yeah, I, uh, I was working at Subway, graduated high school. Mom said, get a job. Uh, found, found the Cutco mailer. Before coming on this this podcast, I thought I really made me think back to exactly what happened because I, I thought you know I gotta I gotta remember and I look back and Dan I was probably like the worst you know like maybe I don't want to say I had the worst start because I sold I sold a good amount of knives but like my first interview I went the wrong way and I missed it I drove like ten miles in the opposite direction because there was no there was no you know GPS on your phone I literally hand wrote the directions two thousand three. And map quested it or whatever. And so I called the receptionist. I'm like, hey, I missed it. Can I still come in? I'm late. She's like, no, we got to reschedule you for tomorrow. So looking back on that as a manager, what are the <laughs> odds that someone comes back in the second day? So I came in and you know, got the job, went home. Uh, dad was like, whatever. Mom was super supportive because she was in sales, uh, pharmaceutical sales. So she was, she was kind of my rock through the whole process. Dad was like, whatever. But I fell asleep in training on the third day. I had to be like woken up twice. So I, you know, I look back and I'm like, man, I don't know how I made it. But I knew when I got the job, when I started doing it, it was what I wanted to do at the time. I was just so excited about it. I had a great first manager, Kevin Thorson, uh, who, who eventually went off into the finance world and is doing other things now. And a great, great first assistant manager hired me on, Holly Manning, uh, who I'm still in touch with. And uh, really just what an unbelievable chain of events. I look back and I often talk to my best friend, Ray Reed, about this on so much could have gone differently. And uh, just given, get, getting that opportunity to work with Cutco is amazing. So got into management. Matt King eventually moved into the territory, uh, got the opportunity to work with him. He promoted me into management, You know, got the chance to compete for an All-American scholarship. And I just love training and teaching people. And I remember... I mean, there's tons of stuff I go through, but working with Jake Bailey and Matt and, uh, you know, just, just some amazing friendships and, and, and people there. You look like you want to ask me something. Yeah. Oh, I wanted to just ask you, what are some of the most memorable experiences you had? Gosh, how PG do I have to keep this? Uh, it doesn't have to. <laughs> well, I definitely remember uh, one summer we were selling a lot of knives. It was, you know, Matt was running the office. Jake was the pilot sales manager. I was an assistant manager and Matt must have been super stressed. And I think one of us left a, a cap of a marker off. <laughs> and Matt, Matt got really mad. And then Jake and Matt started fighting in the office and uh, they wrestled. <laughs> and, and Matt choked Jake out on the floor and then they tapped. And like, it was like, as soon as they got up, they were like best friends again. And I was like, this is awesome, you know? That's a and, great metaphor um, for how we should be able to debate and discuss with each other anything, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, but I mean, working as an assistant manager, uh, you know, Matt and Jake, they were like big brothers to me or, or uncles to me and, uh, you know, taught me so much and, and taught me how to, you know, manage people and, and how to, you know, Matt taught me the, the importance of, you know, showing up on time. And that still sticks with me every single day. I still think about some of the lessons he taught me about not being late to the office and just, you don't realize at that age, at 18, 19, 20 years old, what you're learning. And that's the beauty and the power of Cutco is you will come out of it not only a better person and immensely changed for it, 
But later on in life, these little things get revealed to you, these little moments or, or lessons that you go, gosh, I learned that when I was 18 and Cutco taught me that. And now it's helping me when I'm, you know, I'm 35 years old. And so I, I will forever be grateful and encourage anyone to, to take the opportunity. And whether that's for summer or for like Michael Bromwitz, I'm so proud to see him win multiple silver cups this year. He's won five in the last two years. Uh, it's just so cool to see what you can develop into uh, with, with the opportunity with Cutco. So, and I, I ran my own office and, that was awesome. And my best friend still sells Cutco. His wife still sells Cutco. They're in the Hall of Fame. So it's just fun to go over to their house and say, Hey, how's your SC2 push going? And to do a little PDI with them and uh, <laughs> to, to make sure hold them, you know, hold them accountable. Yeah. You you referenced uh, you know, learning lessons that have stuck with you that you still use to this day. What 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 are one or two things that come to mind when you think about lessons you learned from Cutco that are still applicable to what you're doing now? Yeah, I mean. For a lot of people, the industries that you're going to go into later on in life, they're, they're going to present the same challenges. They might look a little bit different, but Cutco enables you to pick up on the patterns. And you, you start to become... I, I kind of think Cutco is like... This is a little nerdy, but it's like being a Jedi. You, know, you, you start off, you're this young you know, Padawan in training, and then you, you, know, you learn these different things. And now being in sales, handling objections, you know, just hearing no and knowing that it's not personal. Being able to extract certain information through conversations where you're kind of acting in the present, but in your head, you can slow things down because you've seen this move before, you've seen the game before. So if you're in sales, you know, it's it's obviously going to continue to help. But you know, if you can go through three days of training, make cold calls, either virtual appointments or going to someone's home and, and sell them some knives, the confidence. That I brought into other areas of my life, uh, people go, you know, what did you do before this? And, and if if they know Cutco, they get it. If they don't know Cutco, they're like, wow, okay, you know. To me, it's more of a uh, of a lifestyle. I'd say it's just embracing that uh, that experience and those challenges that you go through. And Cutco provides such a fertile ground for you not to give up, you know. And that that's something I think is so important in a in a young age is is being somewhere where you're gonna experience adversity and that person's gonna be right there to 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 walk you through it or say, hey, I went through that same thing. Here's how you can handle it next time. Indeed, Chris, uh I, I appreciate some of the things you just said right there about uh the fertile ground not to give up. I think that's a critical piece of success in anything. We all have to experience adversity. We all have to experience leveraging and, and flexing our muscle of resilience. And that uh, in Cutco, people have a chance to experience a lot of what I would call small failures. Uh, yeah. For example, a customer saying no or not buying or something like that. It's, a, it's such a small failure, but it's a moment to practice that you know that art of resilience. And, and that becomes a critical piece of success at anything. It becomes a critical piece of uh, having good relationships with people. Of parenting is certainly an exercise, a tremendous exercise in small failures and lots of resilience being required. And yep. you know, everything in life kind of spins out of that aspect. And and then what you said about recognizing the patterns in interacting with people and how uh, I love what you said about you know. Cutco is like being a Jedi. That was so such yeah. a cool uh, uh, example to share. That uh, you know, we 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 have a chance to practice so many interactions with people, yeah. and you begin to learn more about empathy and interaction. You begin to learn more about influence, and 
And I do think that people that have come through Cutco and that are fair-minded and you know have a good heart, like I feel like you and I both have, are better at bringing people together in any environment, whether it's a work environment or a political conversation. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And uh, yeah, I can't thank the people enough who who were a part of that. And you know, I know that they were were making money, and you know, they were they had goals that they were hitting as well. But it, I never lost sight of the fact, or never felt like there was that that moment where you know, there the, the support wasn't there. And I just really encourage anyone to you know, like we used to say, take the leap and uh, go do something you're a little bit a little bit afraid of or you've never done, and it leads to great things. Yeah. Cool. Well, hey, Chris, as you look into your own future, what are you most excited about? Uh, well, you know, recent recent promotion at work, which is great. I live here in Tampa where I'm born and raised with my girlfriend and we've got two little dogs. Uh, so probably a, a lot to look forward to in the future there. Uh, my best friends are, are pregnant and are, are having a baby. So that's awesome. So lots, lots going great for work. You know, excited to continue to build my financial planning career in, in this office here in Tampa. And uh, it, it gets me excited thinking about building an organization just like I did when I got into the PSM role or the district manager role and competing. And we, what's cool is we've actually been able to institute some of the competition that Cutco does so well at Ameriprise. So I actually took the Silver Cup thing. I remember reaching out to the Eastern Region last year and I said, Hey, send me your Silver Cup thing. Eventually, Michael Bromwood sent it to me, the document that shows it. And we started breaking our advisors up into leagues. So they could feel more competitive amongst each other. A 25-year vet's not going to compete with a three-year uh, person. So we've been able to institute some of that. And it's been received really, really well. So um, just excited in general for that. And um, just to keep applying that and keep building, man. That's awesome. And Chris, to bring this full circle, what do you feel gives you hope for our country for the future? Yeah. So this conversation... Or that question probably comes up a lot, phrased differently in my job, where people say, you know, do you think the stock market's going to crash, or do you think that you know I'm going to lose all my money? And I say, what what gives me hope is every day, a hundred million Americans get up and they go to work, or they go to their computer, or or whatever it might be, and they go to make a better life for themselves and for their families. And no matter what Donald Trump's saying, Joe Biden's saying, the rest of the world is doing. At the end of the day, when you have that many good people getting up and going to make a better life for themselves, uh, that's what honestly gives me hope in this country. It's the individual people. It's the people in society that we've really seen highlighted over this last year, You know, whether it's post office or grocery or whatever it is. I mean, law enforcement. I mean, every day people get up and, and, and say, hey, I'm going to go fight it. I'm going to go tough it out. And uh, that's what gives me hope. I still see that all over the place. And uh, we got to do a better job. I just think of recognizing that and, and 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 looking for the good, and it's all around us. So, indeed, indeed. Well, I appreciate all of what you brought here to this episode today. This has been a thought-provoking conversation. I hope everybody's gotten a lot out of listening to us, and I'm yeah. grateful for the the real energy you brought to making this awesome. So, thanks a lot for being part of the podcast. Yeah, thanks, Dan. This was awesome. Thanks for having me. That was Chris Sankey, everyone. I hope you enjoyed our conversation. Uh, nice uh, shout-outs there to Matt King and Jake Bailey and the role they played in Chris's Cutco career in being great examples for him of success. I love the idea that uh, being in, uh, successful in Cutco is like being a Jedi. 
that you really begin to understand, you know, how people think and how to interact better with people and that anybody with skills and Cutco and skills and selling in general can be a leader who helps bring people together. And I feel like that's really applicable right now, regardless of what is happening as you're listening to this podcast on January 20th or whenever it is that you're listening to it. I think that any of us here could be a force for unity in our society. And if you're one of those people who, like me and Chris, do not subscribe to some ideological checklist that is all on one side or all on the other, then I think it's important to challenge both sides. Leaders need to stand up, not just against their opposition, but leaders need to be willing to stand up at times when they see their own side getting off the rails and be willing to challenge people. And when you are the one who is challenged, receive it openly as an opportunity for greater self-knowledge. I wanted to also reiterate one thing I said, that diversity guarantees misunderstandings. When you have different types of people all together in different settings, there are going to be things that are misunderstood. There are going to be things that someone might say that doesn't register in the same way or the right way for others. And, and in those times, I think it's important to give other people the benefit of the doubt, at least the first time or the first few times, to assume good intentions and to work to understand others. If we can do that, we have a chance to create much more common ground. We can be a part of what I call today the radical middle that helps create this alternative voice that's not Democrat and that's not Republican in our society and that can help with just having more common ground and more unity. It is possible people who are leaders can help create it. I challenge you to have a mindset of wanting to bring this uh, to our society. And I uh, hope that uh, you enjoyed being able to hear some of the perspectives of Chris Sankey here today. If you like this episode, please check out episode number 152, which was released on Election Day 2020, where I talk about three ideas to unite America or Check out episode number 138, where I talk with Andrew Smallwood about empathy, understanding, and civil discourse. I really hope these episodes can help share a perspective that can lead us all to more common ground and peaceful unity. You can also help this podcast by supporting any of our sponsors. Go to changinglivespodcast.com slash deals to check out some of the special offers that are there. Thanks, everyone. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed today's episode of Changing Lives, Selling Knives, please consider rating or reviewing us on your podcast player and hit the subscribe button so future episodes are automatically downloaded directly to your device. For access to guest bios, show notes, and other resources, visit changinglivespodcast.com. You can sign up there to receive valuable resources for free from people featured on the podcast. This is Dan Cassetta signing off. We'll be back in a few days for our next story about changing lives. 